Thank you for those beautiful songs. Uh, please turn in your copies of the scriptures to Joshua chapter 3. Uh, there's a couple things I just want to say before we start. First of all, a special welcome to friends of Narita and I, Jeff and Kelsey Hostetler. Jeff is the uh, senior pastor at Berlin Mennonite, but he's on sabbatical, which allows, which is good for us, because they can be here and their three daughters. Uh, welcome to you. Um, the other thing I want to remind you of is next Sunday, the sermon, uh, the bulletin was not changed, but next Sunday, the group who was in Nicaragua will be sharing Sunday morning. So the battle belongs to the Lord will be pushed out one Sunday. And, uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll figure out what, we'll figure out their battle, how their battle belonged to the Lord, and then we'll hear from it in, in God's word. For those of you who have just been, uh, just here, we are preaching through the Exodus, the deliverance of God's people in the past. Now, if I ask each of you, how many of you like history? Uh, some of you, yeah, some of you like history. Good, amazing representation, especially from younger people. I thought Marvin would be the only person who likes history, maybe. You know, when you're 63 and the oldest person in church, you get special privileges. Uh, you also need hearing aids and glasses and stuff like that, too, but you get special privileges. Etta would be older than you are. Eddie is not here. Uh, the oldest male here, I guess. Um, but people often either love or hate history, and many people kind of scoff at learning history because they, they see it as old and gone. They think it's a realm of old people. And it's not. Uh, I, I want to invite you into this. I think that it, it's easy for us to think about history as boring, or it will not give us any real-world skills. How does learning History give us real-world skills. And what does it have to do with Joshua 3 to 5 and the crossing of the Jordan River? Well, we'll see in a minute. But history does, uh, as N.T. Wright says, history is not about tidiness. It, it, it's often about the odd, the weird, the unrepeatable, and the unlikely. That's what gets recorded in history. The normal doesn't often get recorded in history. It's just normal. And so when you, when you see, read these stories and hear these stories, and, and when we look back in history, we often kind of look back as observers. We're, we're observing things. But maybe we should become more than that. Maybe we should become active participants in these stories of history. Well, so how do we do that? Well, I, th I think Jesus' call to his people is for us to be participants in the world that we live in, to engage the world we live in. Uh, I, I really find it fascinating uh, to think about that. We are called into the stories of history, not in order to find out how, God, how to get God in our lives or how to get him to participate in our lives. Rather, it's about pulling us into participation with God in his work in history. So when we read these stories from the Old Testament, it's not about, the first question shouldn't be, how can I apply this to my life? That comes down the road. First question is, how, how can I engage this story? How can I in, involve myself in this story in a beautiful way? Um, and so we're going to do that this morning. And it does have something particularly to do with history, as we're going to see. I've divided this uh, passage from uh, chapter 3 to chapter 5 in Joshua into three pieces. We're going to call them the crossing and then we're going to talk about a pile of stones. And then we're going to talk about 
the preparation to go into the new land. And, and think with me through this. Uh, how many of you like reading Deuteronomy? That's why, you know what? Deuteronomy is a powerful book. It's three sermons that Moses preaches probably within the span of a, maybe a week or a few days. So chapter 1 through 4, one sermon, or chapter 1 through 5, roughly. And then, the, then there's a longer sermon, kind of like mine. Um, and then there's another short sermon at the end. And Deuteronomy 1, we're not t- preaching from Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy 1 says, in the 40th year, in the first day of the 11th, 11th month. And it also then talks about, in, in Deuteronomy 1, that, uh, or is it Joshua 1? I'm getting the ones confused here. It says, uh, no, in Deuteronomy 1, it says it is 11 days journey by foot from, uh, from Egypt on down, or where they, Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. It is 11 days journey. You know what? That's, it's there for a purpose. It didn't take them 11 days. It took them 40 years to make that journey. And so Moses is saying, here is the explanation why it took you, why it took 40 years to go 11 days journey. If you would have walked directly, that's what it would have taken, 11 days. Instead, it took them 40 years. And the 40 years, and so now we're at the, in the 40th year, in the first day of the 11th month. How many months in a year? Come on, they have the same amount of months in a year as we do. 12, okay? So we're almost at the end of the 40 years. And you can feel, that's when Deuteronomy begins. And, and then Moses preaches these sermons, and then Moses dies. And this is one of the most uh, poignant moments in the Bible. When God takes Moses up. Moses has worked his life for these people. He's given his life for these people. He's 120 years old, it says, and he's still not dimmed by age. You have a while to go, Marvin. Another set of uh, 60 here to go. Okay? He's still not dimmed by age. And he goes up and, and he dies up on the mountain. And no one knows where Moses is buried because Moses was such a great man that God knew that the temptation would be to set up monuments for Moses rather than to follow God. And so Moses dies. He's gone. And in Joshua, it says, on the 14th day of the first month. 14th day of the first month. Oh, oh, the other thing they did, Moses died and they mourned for 30 days. So they had a funeral for 30 days. So 11th, the first day of the 11th month, somewhere in that 11th month, until end of that 11th month, Moses died. Then they mourned for 30 days, and now they're ready to go. And anticipate with me, they're young people. There's only three old, three old couples left. There's Caleb and Joshua. Right, three? Two. Two. Caleb and Joshua and their wives, most likely. By the way, Caleb is another. I, I want to preach from this for a while. But Caleb is one of these people who, at the end, of, you know, he's, a, he's 80 years old, and he tells, when they go into the promised land, he says, hey, find me a place where I can go fight, some, where there's some really big guys. Because I'm not done. I'm 80, and I'm still tough. I can, I can still beat up anybody. He says that. He literally says that. So, so now they're ready to go. They're ready to move into the, the promised land. And, and in some strange way, uh, it, it's almost, the crossing is almost, it's a really small portion of Scripture. It's, it's kind of like we're there, now we're going to do it. 
Okay, so we're, we've done it now. We've, we're 40 years. We're young. And everyone is young except for these two old guys. And think about this. They, they're, they're tough. They've been in the wilderness. They've had a simple diet. They're, they're skinny. They're, there's no obesity there. They're skinny because they've been eating manna. It is the prime food to live on and to run on. By the way, I'm running 50 miles this coming uh, Saturday, and I'm thinking about diet and those kind of things. These people are prime, ready to go. So let's pick up the story in Joshua 3. I will begin reading, and again, I'm using this uh, translation, um, the Immerse Reading Bible, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left the Acacia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River, where they camped before crossing. Three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord our God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. And we'll pick up the story in in chapter 3, verse 9. So Joshua told the Israelites, Come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the water will stand up like a wall. So all the people left the camp across the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was a harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below the point flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over the near the town of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on the dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed all, crossed the Jordan on dry ground. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now take those twelve men, one from each tribe, tell them, take twelve stones away from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them up, and pile them up at a place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, Go into the middle of the Jordan, in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder. Twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these twelve stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask, What do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. We'll pick it up again in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15. The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant to come up out of the riverbed. So Joshua gave the command, As soon as the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came up out of the riverbed and their feet were on high ground, The water of the Jordan returned and overflowed its banks as before. 
the people crossed the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. Then they camped at Gilgal, just east of Jericho. It was there at Gilgal that Joshua piled up the twelve stones taken from the Jordan River. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future, your children will ask, What do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. This is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up, until we had all crossed over. He did this so all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. We'll pick up the story in a minute in, in chapter 5. So one of the things that I observed is Joshua tells the people, you have not been this way before. You have never experienced this. So you're going to need some instructions about how to experience this. And when we are faced with the moments of our lives where we don't know how to move ahead, where we, 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 can't, we, don't, we don't know what the future holds. And by the way, all of us are facing these mini Jordans all the time in our lives. We, we, but let's just engage in the story for a minute here because it's engaging in the story that we begin to make some sense of our own story because we're humans just like they were. And so think, think you have a family. And these are young, these are people under 40. They have young children. There's a lot of young children. Kind of like when everyone's here at church, there's this kind of dull uh, roar all the time. And, and so the children, you know, children are running around and, then, and the parents come to their children. The men go through the camp and they say, now listen everybody, don't, don't get too close. Be ready to move, but keep a half a mile distance between you and the ark. And so, and when that ark gets close, they say, mom, dad, how are we going to get across the river? That's the promised land over there. That's where we're going. Yeah, how are we going to get it? I, I, whatever, whatever Joshua says. And so imagine the next morning with me, they get up. That morning, and the, they see this kind of the, the Levitical priests starting moving out with the ark. And this kind of quietness falls over the camp. And they begin to think about, oh, what's going to happen now? And they, they get close to the edge of the river. And suddenly, as those priests try to step into the root water, the water goes away. Now, we, we don't have to wrestle here with how the miracle happened. It was a miracle. You don't cross... Um, by the way, the two and a half tribes who, crossed over, who didn't cross over, two and a half tribes stayed on the east side of the Jordan, but they were willing to send fighting men. From those two and a half tribes, they had 40,000 fighting men that crossed over with them. So it's not a small group of people here. But, oh, before they went, Joshua said, now listen, pick out a man from each of you. It should be a strong man from each of your tribes. You know, the Yoders, the Millers, the Hostetlers, you know, each tribe. And, and when you, and reserve those 12 men. And then there's this strange space and but but they go well. Let's just cover the crossing. They they get to this place that the last roadblock. They're a young nation ready to go conquer the space that God wants them to have. Ready to move into the places that God wants them to move into. And as that happens, they have this one obstacle left. And when that when they when they follow the direction of God, when they follow the spirit of God, and they step into the river, suddenly the water goes up. And a, a dam is about twenty miles away. Think about the pagans on the other side. Woo! The river stopped flowing for a minute here. Uh, Mom, you won't believe what I saw today. The water stopped. I don't know. And I, you know, the, it, I often thought, well, did the children go up and, you know, this wall of water try to poke their hand? No, actually, it'd be 20 miles away. There's no water near. 
So they, they, they go through with no water in sight. And that's amazing. But they walk through that river, and they're on the other side. And then Joshua says, oh, yeah, those 12 guys. You pick the dwindles of the world, the big guys, the stout guys. And he says, and it's very specific in, recorded in, in the scriptures that they, they were, Joshua told them, you go in and you find a, a stone where the priest stood. You find a stone there. And you put that stone on your shoulder. Now, if I ask you to pick a stone, and you had a, a, that big a stone, would you put it up, carry it on your shoulder? What, why, why on the shoulder? It's a big stone. It's something that takes some heft to get up out of that and put up on the shoulder. That's purposeful, because those stones, they're going to go out and put those stones, and then they arrange those stones. But, well, they, get, they get across. And think about the miracle of, of this young group of people, this group of young people moving across this river and this quietness. And there, there has to be fear. There has to be fear. You're afraid of this too. There's always this fear. As you move into the unknown, there's always this fear. But they're ready. They've got everything ready. And they're going across. And they're fit. And they're, they get to the other side. And the 12 men go get the stones and bring them out. And then the priests walk up out of the river and suddenly the river starts flowing again. It's just as much of a miracle that the river flows again whether there's, there's arguments by people that there was an earthquake, sure, I'm all for that. If that's what stopped the... Yo, great. It's still a miracle. Still a miracle they got across. And it's, it's a miracle of how, how God moves in all of our lives. And then they take those 12 stones. And did you notice the intentionality? So you've got this crossing, and all of us are invited to move into the places that God has called us to and say... What does what God want us to do here? But often there's obstacles in the way. The, the, the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea, actually. The Red Sea, the Jordan River, the wilderness. Often there's obstacles. And, but when we follow the leading of God, where, where God has placed us and called us to, when we follow that leading, sometimes it is through our own hard work, and sometimes it is miracles that open up the way for us. But they get in. They get on the other side. And now they take those 12 stones and they very intentionally arrange them at a place called Gilgal. It's where they're going to camp. And this will become where Joshua runs the nation. So for the, most of the rest of his life, this will be the base for the children of Israel and Joshua. Gilgal means circle of stones. And so they arrange these stones and then Joshua tells all the people, Now... When your children ask you, Dad, why is that pile of stones there? You tell them how he delivered us. That pile of stones is very, very intentional. Because what he, what he wants is, he wants these young, he, as kids and, and children walk by there, they say, Dad, Dad, what's that pile of stones? Then I want you to tell them how God delivered us from Egypt. And in the very same way, God is inviting us that when our children ask it, Dad, why do we go to church on Sunday morning? Dad, why do we do this? Dad, why do we wash feet? Why do we have communion? Those are opportunities for you to tell them. And, and it's not, you shouldn't give them theology at that point. Notice he doesn't say, well, you tell them about the theology of the Exodus. What you should do is tell them your own story of how God delivered you. Of how God moved in the past. I was reminded this morning... I often, when I think about this passage, I think about the mural hall, behold, as we tell the story. But I also think about some personal stories of deliverance in my own life. How as a young 19-year-old boy walking away from Jesus, 
reading these stories from history, how God suddenly began to move in my heart. And I began to think about what does it mean to walk with Jesus? What does it mean? And I returned from a life of uh, sin and began to follow Jesus. I think about a moment in central Florida, uh, right below Alligator Alley in a, in, a immigrant, in a farming village called Osceola, Florida, when I was traveling with a group of young people, Narita and I, and uh, we had a bus, and buses cause people to pray when you travel with groups because they break down. Um, so we, we'd, Saturday night, we were flying to Nicaragua, speaking of, 22 years ago, we were flying to Nicaragua. And we were taking 40 young people to Nicaragua, but we sang our way to Florida before we went to Nicaragua. And in this, uh, we were flying on Monday mornings. This is Saturday nights. We're going to sing in a migrant church that night and then go to Miami and sing in Miami on Sunday morning and, and prepare to fly early Monday morning. We pull into this uh, church parking lot and you hear a loud crack. And our bus driver said, oh, no. And looked back, and the back set of wheels in the bus was standing at an angle like this. So the arm that holds your wheel upright, the knuckle had broken. So we went out, and uh, we kind of did our thing. We unloaded everybody in the church. Thank God we were at the church. Forty young people along the interstate is no fun either. I've done that too. Um, so we got them into the church, and then I began to work the phones. I called the mechanic of the bus, and he said, I know the exact part you need. I said, what are the chances of finding the part in Florida, in the middle of Florida, on a Saturday night? He said, nil. There is not a chance. We're going to have to look for another bus. And I said, is there any chance there's a box of spare parts on the bus? Is there any chance there's something in there? And he said, no, I just organized the box right before you left, and I know there's not one in there. And about that time, one of the young guys comes running in who was helping him with the wheels and says, uh, Hey, 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 we found the part. Uh, I said, they're saying they found the part. He said, that's impossible. When they pulled out the toolbox of the bus, there's a pair of coveralls laying there, and on top of the coveralls was the very part that we needed to fix that wheel. How do you explain that? You just tell the story. You tell the story because it's in these stories of miracles and deliverance that we begin to see our own story emerge. Now, not all stories end like that. We were in a bus once along uh, near Rollins, Wyoming on Interstate 80 where the engine blew. And we, we were stuck there for three days and three nights in a hotel in Rollins, Wyoming with 52 young people. What do you do with 52 young people, 18 to 22-year-olds who are used to active life and they're stuck in hotels? Well, you tell them, just do whatever you want to for the next few days till we get another bus. But in the middle of all that, we, we miss programs. And where I was, I'm stressing. We get home from that tour, and there was a letter waiting on us of a woman who met some of our young ladies walking the streets, and these young ladies prayed with her, and she became a Christian a day later. Would have never happened. But, you know, some, some of these stories you don't know. You, they seem like... There, there is no point to it, but there is a point because the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord God of the universe, the covenant Lord of the universe, remember Joshua's word, is involved. So it's these kind of stories. Tell your children the stories of when God moved in your life. That is the most powerful tool and witness that you can ever give and legacy that you can ever 
uh, leave your children is to say, Daddy loved Jesus and followed him regardless what happened. Mama talked about her own stories with us, and we know them. So you have the crossing and then this remembering. And then you have this kind of, uh, in chapter 5, We'll begin reading again chapter 5. At, the time the Lord told, at th- that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gabeth Haraloth. Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who had left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the exodus during those years in the wilderness had been circumcised. Uh, we'll, we'll begin reading just a little lower. Then the Lord said, well, no, let's, let's just keep going here. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died. For, you, for they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons, those who had grown up to take their father's place, for they had not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Circumcision is about marking, about separating, about creating a sense of identity to something much bigger. For the Israelites, it's that. And so he says, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. What needed to happen is that those people with the slave mentality had to die. And suddenly you have an entire group, an entire generation, who is now being marked. By the way, they had a circumcision right, right before they left Egypt. Remember that? Or right after they left Egypt. They had this circumcision right. And it's this turning point. It's saying we are now into the next phase of what God is doing for us. But he says, today I have rolled away, rolled away, stones, Gilgal, rolled away the shame of your slavery. And sometimes when we have been enslaved to something, when we are enslaved to habits and sin, we need to actually stop long enough so that we are no longer slaves to it. And in the case of the children of Israel, they, they, the old people remembered the watermelon, the leeks, and the garlic of Egypt. And they had to get past that. And these young people remember manna and God moving and, God, and the stories of, of Moses and Joshua. And suddenly they're ready to enter the promised land. I dream of being a part of a group of people. I am a part of a group of people. Thank you. I'm a part of a group of people who is poised at the promised land, saying, God, what do you want us to give? You know, we often sing songs about Chile, Chile Jordan. Well, I can't even say that. I'm too Dutch. But, you know, Jordan is kind of this going into the promised land. The promised land is not heaven in the future. The promised land is today as we enter with, with Jesus and work in his kingdom here on earth. It is very Anabaptist of us to say that the kingdom of God has come to earth when Jesus came to earth. And therefore we can participate in the activities of the promised land. It's not perfect. AI would happen. Jericho would happen. There would be some issues that you have to deal with. But they're dealable. Because you have a group of people who says, we are no longer slaves to sin. We have crossed that river. 
We have set up memorials to God's deliverance, and we have marked ourselves as his people, and we're going to go forward into the promised land. That's the attitude and the way we can move into our world today. Now, interestingly enough, this pile of stones shows up one other time in Scripture. It shows up in Matthew 3, when this strange man, wearing camel skins and eating locust and wild honey with long hair, is preaching out in the wilderness. He's preaching along the Jordan River at the very place where the children of Israel crossed. And he's beginning to baptize people. And he's leading, he's on the spear point of this revolution that is going to culminate when Jesus comes to earth. It is John the baptizer. And he is preparing the way for the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb is coming. By the way, first thing they do in the Promised Land after the circumcision is have Passover together. John the Baptizer is preaching and he sees the Pharisees come. Now the Pharisees are people who know their history really well. In fact, they worship their history. We are good. We're the good Jews. You know, we... We have names like Jacob and Joseph and Israel and Yoder and Miller. We know exactly how to dress at the appropriate times. We know all the rules and we keep them. And we're really harsh on people who don't. We're very well behaved. And John the baptizer sees him coming. And they come piously down there to check out what this strange man is doing. And John sees him coming. And he says, Hey, you! You! Your mothers were snakes. You generation of vipers. Whew! I've not been able to say that. You know, you're snakes. You're snakes. Watch those guys. They're snakes. They're sneaky. And then he says, uh, this is in the M-A-Y edition. You can read it in Matthew 3. But he says, you, you generation of vipers, you think that you have all the truth. You think that you know everything because you're Abraham's children. I tell you, if God wanted to, he could from these very stones raise a people for himself. He's baptizing at the very spot where they cross the river. And it's, it may not be the same pile of stones, but I'm sure the children of Israel kept a pile of stones there. And he's saying, here is the caution. When you talk about these stories, it's easy to go back and, and think about the good old days and everything like that, and to then begin to worship those moments in the past. No, no, we are in the present. And the present means that each generation has to make a decision about how they're going to walk after Jesus. And therefore, if, you know, you guys are stuck in the past. And, and for generations, you've oppressed people. You've put them down. You've put the poor down. You've put the women down. You've put all these people down. You've stepped on them. And because of that, you are a generation of snakes. And I'm telling you, God is going to raise up a new group of people who begin to follow the true Lamb of God and will make a revolution in our world. The question is, will you participate in that story? Today, in 2023, 
in Holmes County, Ohio. Let's stand together.